huge word of warning. Today, I am reading Pee-wee Gaskin's autobiography, The Final Truth. I read this book back in high school before true crime was, you know, trendy and all. Been into it for a long time. But it changed my whole world. And I just want to warn all of you, we don't think all of Pee-wee's words are truth. As he admits, he lies half the time. But this book will change you. And I didn't think there would be any other better way to cover it than telling you the story through his own words. So today I bring you the final truth from Pee Wee Gaskins in his own words. Please proceed with caution. This episode contains what your worst nightmares are made of. Seriously, don't listen. If you think you might not be able to handle, then just skip this one. Okay, thank you. So this is going to be a longer one. I am probably going to have to do a minimum of two episodes since this is a book, but it is not a very long one. So we will get through it. I did not want to just cover the same timelines and do the same type of research and information that has been brought to you guys before. It's been covered on many great podcast episodes and Bailey Sarian with her makeup tutorial. She covers this one. Um, last podcast on the left does a wonderful job. Uh, the final truth. They can always make fun of a, you know, make the darkest stuff hilarious, which I admire. So with that being said, please keep in mind, these are his words and not mine. Uh, I am simply reading his autobiography to you, which he would not allow to be published until after his execution uh, was brought out. So join me as we delve into it. Pee Wee Gaskins, The Final Truth. Keep in mind, this man was a killer, rapist, liar. How much of this is actually truth? We will never really know. But I just want you to remember, these are his words and not mine. There will be some very disturbing, um, very disturbing stuff that we're going to cover here. So anyway, that's what it's all about, right? Get ready. This one is a shocker. And hang on. Here we go for the final truth. Pee Wee Gaskins.
I did most of what I call my serious murders, the ones where I actually know the people that I killed, in Florence and Sumter counties, South Carolina, the same part of the state where I grew up. It's mainly farms and woods, backwaters and swamps, and little towns with names like Lake City and Johnsonville, and other spots not hardly big enough to be put up on a map. Prospect and Leo and Roper's Crossroads and The Neck. It was a good place to lead my kind of life. There was lots of places to bury bodies. Being born on a farm, I know the difference between raising something and it just growing. You raise tobacco and vegetables to harvest and pigs and sheep to butcher. They got purpose. You tend them. But weeds grow on their own, tended or not. I grew, I weren't raised, that's for damn sure. Hell, I didn't know my own real name until I was a teenager and got sentenced to the reformatory. Up until then, at home and at school, my name had always been Junior Parrot. And everybody everywhere called me Junior or Pee Wee Parrot, which made sense to me because my mama's name was Parrot. And as far as I knew, my whole family was named Parrot, except for my stepdaddies. None of them was named Parrot but then nobody ever has the same name as their stepdaddy. When the judge sentenced me to the reformatory until age 18, he said I was lucky I was a juvenile, otherwise he would have put me away for a really long time for what I'd done. Then he looked at my arrest report and asked why I had my mama's name. Where was my daddy? What was his name? And mama didn't lie to him like she did to everybody else. She said I had her name because she never had married my daddy. And that my true name, as it was writ in the family Bible, was Donald Henry Gaskins Jr. For a minute, I thought the judge was going to shit right there on the bench. You sure about that? He said. And my mama said she was real sure. She was 15 when I was born. And Donald Henry Gaskins was the only man who had ever done it to her before. And she got pregnant with me. And he had even helped her with support money until she married my stepdaddy. She told me later that the real person my real daddy had give her money was to keep her quiet about him being my father but she still believed he would have married her if she hadn't been so well off that his family wouldn't let him. When I was younger, there was always one or another of a bunch of different stepdaddies around. I called them all sir and never bothered to learn most of their names because I knew mama wasn't married to them and they wouldn't likely be around for very long. The one she finally did marry was one mean son of a bitch. He used to backhand me and knock me clean across the room just for practice. And then everybody knocked me around. My uncles, my other stepdaddies, and near about all the boys and girls I played with and went to school with. They beat up on me just because I was so damned little. It weren't that I was the littlest because I was youngest, no matter how old I got. I was still littlest. I never growed enough to keep up with the others. That's how I got the nickname Pee-wee. Pee-wee, pee-wee, playing with your pee-pee, they used to say. And when I get mad and hit somebody, that was all the excuse they needed to gang up and beat the hell out of me. 
I was born March 31st, 1933. And most of what I remember from when I was a real young is hazy, like trying to see through smoke in the woods. But I do have this here one memory from before I started school that's as clear as yesterday, going to the carnival. Most of my stepdaddies was tight as a preacher's asshole when it came to money, except for one. The year he lived with my mama, I reckon he had made a good share. It was about 1937, I would guess, and a little carnival had set up along the state highway between Lake City and Johnsonville. And my then stepdaddy decided I was going to go see it. I remember him and mama and me, and a girl cousin who was almost little as me, walking along a sawdust midway and stopping in front of a tent with paintings on it of a snake wrapped around a big-titted woman and an alligator swallowing a whole cow. My stepdaddy paid a dime apiece for him and mama and a nickel each for me and my cousin. Inside the tent in a wire pen was this alligator that didn't look very big to me. Even then, and inside of glass front cages, there was bunches of snakes all balled up, sleeping, I guessed. The man who took our money outside followed us in and talked to us through a megaphone, which he didn't hardly need because there weren't nobody else there but us. He was a barker, I learned later, when I worked the carnivals. And I remember him saying something like, Ladies and gentlemen, let me direct your attention to the center of the tent. The snake lying inside the cage may look peaceful, but don't be fooled. You are looking at the most dangerous creature on God's earth. That is the fearsome King Cobra that each year kills hundreds, some years thousands of men, women, and children in India. Then the barker stopped talking, took a live rat out of a box, and dropped it in the cage with the snake. That rat ran around and around real fast. The cobra stirred, coiled, rose up, and flared out its neck. And the rat stopped, froze like it thought it would, if it stayed still, might turn invisible. What took hold of my attention right then was that the cobra's head was almost exactly as high up as my head. When I looked through the glass, I was staring it straight in the eye. And my, my reflection looked like that cobra and me had the same head and face and eyes. This one was fed last night. That bulge halfway down its length is the supper it is still digesting. So let me assure you, this snake is not hungry. And as you no doubt noticed when you walked up to its cage, the cobra didn't get upset. It just lay there. That's because it is used to people and knew it didn't need to defend itself. But now, suddenly, it has raised itself up and is about ready to strike. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is what makes the cobra the most dangerous of all reptiles. The fact that, even as we watch it, it's preparing to kill for no reason other than the fact that it has decided to kill. The snake struck, then stretched out and went back to sleep. The rat didn't move. I looked at my reflection, then at the cobra, and I turned and saw my girl cousin holding tight to my mama's leg 
and I looked up at my mama and stepdaddy's faces and saw that they seemed pretty scared too. I had a heart on and I knew that what I had just seen was somehow special and important, even though I didn't know why. I still carry that memory, clear as a picture etched on my brain. Nothing they do to me can ever burn it away. But I can't say there was much else about them years spent growing up on a tobacco farm outside of Leo, South Carolina, that was worth remembering. To me, school was more than just a waste. It was kind of torture. Everybody picked on me, so I got into fights almost every day. And then I got punished by the teachers and principal for fighting. It's no wonder I never learned jack shit. About the onlyest thing I truly interested me when I was a boy, and still does, was figuring out what made things work, especially cars and things electric like radios. It was a pretty good tinkerer by the time I was 10. That peewee can fix anything, Mommy used to say. Even then, my stepdaddy admitted that I was a pretty good car fixer-upper. Before I was 10, I was hanging around with mechanics at the filling station a few miles down the highway. And when I was 11, I was laying out of school about half the time, making a dollar or two a day to help tote and fetch and do. When I up and quit school, my mama was real unhappy. My stepdaddy said that if I weren't to go to school, I had to work in the fields and do more chores. I said I wanted to work on cars, not on a farm. But he beat my ass so bad every time I slipped off to work for the mechanic that I decided it was just best to do what he wanted. Then after a while, thanks to my mama, he agreed that on Saturdays I could go work at the station. Not far from where we lived was this old house that had been empty for years. Most Sunday afternoons and at any other time I could, I went out there to meet up with other boys from around Leo. We called it our hideout. We sat around and smoked cigarettes. We had stole, bragged about how much we knew about girls, and we watched the older boys and learned how to jerk off or cornhole or fuck a sheep or goat or chicken. And we usually ended up fighting about something. I remember that the worst whipping I ever got was this time me and two older boys dug a trench back at back of the outhouse at the church so we could hide there and watch the women and girls when they pulled down their pants. Three sets of stepdaddies, a preacher and a deacon and four mamas, including my mama, joined together and tore our asses to ribbons with switches for that. Even back then, girls pissed me off. The way I saw it, they had something boys wanted, but wouldn't even let a boy look at it, much less fuck it. especially made me mad that them bitches could do anything they wanted, show their asses, make fun of me, even beat me up, and dare me to do anything about it, knowing I couldn't do nothing without being punished by grown-ups. But don't get me wrong, my childhood weren't all that bad all the time. I weren't, I certainly weren't in no way what you'd ever call abused. Final truth is, for the most part, my family life was pretty good. I had two sisters and two brothers. I reckon half-sisters and half-brothers is more correct. They was all a lot younger than me because they wasn't born until after I started school and my mama finally married my legal stepdaddy, Hennant Hannah, who was truly mean as hell and is dead now. 
so was one of my half-brothers. My mama was a real good cook. We always had enough to eat. Most days after I'd quit going to school, I did my chores and minded my manners and stayed out of trouble. And my brothers and sisters did their chores and didn't mess with me. They was even nice to me sometimes, usually when something of theirs was broke and they wanted me to fix it. I had a good little business going. On Saturdays, people brought broken radios and record players and sewing machines and things like that to the gas station. And I took them home and repaired them in the evenings. I worked in a corner of the parlor room, which was also where me and my brothers slept. The whole family sat in there after supper because that's where the radio was. And we listened to The Shadow and The Lone Ranger and The Grand Old Opry and all kinds of good programs like that. Mama was almost always sewing. She, while my stepdaddy smoked his pipe and sipped corn and talked back to the radio, and my sisters and brothers played and teased. I remember my house and my family usually being like that, good and peaceful. But no matter how things went, good or bad, I always felt like something bothersome was a stirring inside me. It was like I had this ball of plumber's lead rolling around in my guts. Most times it lay quiet, just weighing me down. Other times it grew bigger and hotter, like I was going to explode. Every once in a while, I dreamed, and I still do, that it blowed me apart. And there was all these millions of little pieces and parts of me running around and flying around trying to find each other and put me back together. Oh my gosh, did you make it to the end? Thank you for sticking with it. Oh, this is the end of chapter one. Uh, we already have some cornholing and bestiality and uh, just the madness. So <laughs> I'm trying not to laugh as I say uh, things like big titty woman because uh, it's just funny. And I hope the accent is okay. I felt like I couldn't read these words without <laughs> doing it. It just felt like it had to be done that way. So I hope it's not too corny. Hope you guys enjoy. Let me know. I appreciate all the feedback. Follow, like, subscribe, do all of those things. And um, I love you. Let's talk soon. Bye.